how do we democratize well-being? Well, I, I think it starts with self-awareness and awareness of the others. Uh, and to notice these connections between our well-being and the health of people globally. My actions right now uh, are having a huge influence on, on somebody on some island very far away who is bearing the brunt of what we're seeing with climate change in terms of, you know, the rising sea levels or um, wildfires. Maybe. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. So Parneet, welcome to our show. This is where we interview amazing individuals in our community in the wider FRC network. And we've been wanting to get on a call with you for some time. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Amina, and really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Well, as I was going through your bio, and that's something that's available for others to read in detail, the one thing really struck out to me as a good place to start. And I think that is what was it like to get into medical school at 17 and have that shape really you're thinking around you know health and the body and how we're supposed to perform at such a, a such a young age if we could start there and you can take us through a few milestones that have brought you to where you are today sure um so i grew up in india and uh like every other indian girl who did well in school uh, I was told that I would be a physician when I grew up. So uh, I think, and that was, you know, the dream that my parents had. Uh, and so I basically took it for granted. I never questioned that decision. I loved biology in school and I was a straight A student. So, you know, I was, uh, uh, it came easily to me. And in India, you do have the option. You, you have the option to go to medical school straight after high school, which is what I did. So that's how I ended up in medical school at the age of 17. And it was really eye-opening for me uh, and getting to understand the beauty and the magnificence and the wisdom of our biology and physiology, which I absolutely fell in love with and am to this day. And, but also it was a bit of a shock to me, you know, when, when we went into our clinical rotations and realizing what the actual practice of medicine entails. Uh, which was very different from sort of a very rosy colored uh, view I had of it very naively prior to going into it. But, um, and, and then, you know, after I uh, graduated from medical school at the age of 21, I was really thinking about, you know, how did I want to apply this knowledge? And I've always been a bit of an explorer and adventurer. And I, so I have that kind of risk-taking streak in me, which I think is conducive to flow in some ways, uh, very curious uh, and, I wanted to explore the world and I, I come from a very humble background, you know, my parents and my family 
supported me in, in all the ways that they could, but I sort of had to make my way through the world and figure out what I wanted to do and, and fend for myself. And, and that journey basically brought me to North America where I ended up doing my medical residency. I was really lucky to get into amazing schools at Columbia and at Harvard. Uh, and then of course, by the end of medical residency, quickly realized that uh, clinical practice was not making me happy. This is not how I wanted to apply the, you know, what I was learning. And I was really drawn towards uh, prevention. And so I think all of that came together. Even back then, I think the seeds of what is now my, uh, you know, massively transformative purpose, if you will, uh, or my mission, it has stayed pretty consistent for more than a decade now, uh, which is to contribute to building a compassionate society where health is the default. And uh, this, you know, what this mission looks like has evolved over the years. And for me, uh, you know, in this present day, it looks like the intersection of health and leadership and climate and sustainability. And we can get into what all of that means. But yeah, so for, for, so for me, you know, the first part, which was how can we make health the default, was really guided when I looked at the data. So when you look at the burden of disease globally, globally, not just in North America, it's most of our healthcare dollars go, go towards treating lifestyle related chronic diseases. And the data very clearly show that 80 to 90% of this, these diseases are completely preventable when you pay attention to your lifestyle, you know, what you eat, how you move, how you sleep, how you manage your stress and emotions. So for me, when I saw that piece of data, I was shocked that, you know, the emphasis in medical school, in medicine, uh, in our healthcare system is always on treating people after they fall sick. Very little attention uh, is paid to prevention. And that's where I wanted to focus on because I think, you know, growing up in India, I also come with a very uh, holistic and integrated view of what health looks like. So that's one piece. But then, you know, as I started diving into what helping people stay well might look like. And that journey took me through designing well-being programs for executive health, for wellness spa, and then ultimately in the workplace uh, and scaling those well-being programs. Uh, I realized that individual responsibility is important, of course, and we, we need everybody needs to take care of their health and human performance. This is something that, of course, I, uh, I focus on in my work a lot. Um, but systems really matter. And if we, are if we are to make change on the kind of global scale that we want to see in, and make health the default, we have to make health and well-being become easy for people. Uh, and, this and this then reflects on the kinds of leadership that we have in healthcare systems, in government, in policymaking, you know, uh, the, the setup, the physical environment around us, you know, does that is that really conducive to our health and well-being? So, so, so that's the health being the default part of the mission. And, and my role in this is, yes, I want to scale those well-being programs in the workplace, uh, but I also want to influence leadership at the highest levels that are making these decisions and, and setting these systems up. But then the compassionate part, I think, is equally important uh, because it's impossible for me to be well if the people around me and by extension of the planet is suffering. And I think the pandemic has very beautifully highlighted this point. And so when we uh, look at 
you know, so, so what, like, you know, what does compassion have to do with it? Well, compassion is all about noticing the suffering, not just in yourself, but in, in, in others, and then being motivated to take action, to do something about it, to change it. Uh, and the good news about compassion is that it's a, it's a trainable skill in the brain. You know, there are things that you can do to train your compassion networks. And so I think for me, that is my ideal vision of the world that we want to live in is, is, is a, a compassionate one where health is a default, where then we can show up and have those moments of flow and be our best and perform our best and, and take care of each other. Mm, I love that you fell back on compassion first and not, um, you know, some kind of fitness protocol to up your performance or something for well-being. So it's a very important aspect to this. And, you know, you're looking at, you, you speak, um, you've spoken about the individual level, because obviously you've been a physician before, but then there's also this grand scale that you are looking at and addressing, uh, especially in a lot of talks, you do a lot of uh, speaker engagements globally. So I'd love to know your opinion on you know, how we address well-being um, for the other 90%. You know, this, this tends to be very much a topic that sits, frankly, in the 1%. Uh, and it's very much an access and distribution issue. So uh, when you talk about this kind of larger scale well-being, and I know you want to influence leaders, um, how do you frame that? How do, we, how do you frame the democratization of well-being? So I think it depends on the audience. So you have to um, you have to understand who's in the crowd and what their motivations might be. For a lot of people, I found that if you can personalize the outcome, it, it works really well. So one example that I'll give you is, and this is also sort of something that I want the FRC community to think more about uh, and to uh, ask themselves is, you know, the food on your plate, two to three times a day, each individual on the planet has the power to influence the well-being of everyone globally through the choices that they make with the food on their plate. So I want us to start becoming aware of and asking ourselves, what's on my plate? Where did it come from? What is the carbon footprint uh, of the food? What did it take? Uh, who were the who were the people's uh, people that touch that food? So all the way from the, the, the farmer that grew the food to the um, storage folks, to the retailers, to the manufacturers, to the cook in whatever kitchen it was cooked in before it landed on your plate. And then, so that's one piece, which is so what is the carbon footprint of that food? And then once I eat, once I consume this food. How does it impact my own energy? So my ability to the energy that I have to show up for whatever work that I'm doing in the world and the way that I might be showing up as a leader or you know, whatever change, whatever my MTP might be in the world. Uh, how, does, but how does it affect my relationships and the way that I interact with other people? But then what is the impact on the planet? And, and a great way to sort of, and that can seem like a very lofty thing to think about. But if you just ask yourself this question, if all the almost 8 billion people on the planet today were to eat the way that I'm eating, um, and then, you know, in a few years time by 2050, you know, the 10 billion or so people, if they were to eat what I'm eating in a day, would we even have a planet that we could survive on? Um, or what would, how would that impact 
you know, the weather patterns uh, in, in many different parts of the world. So again, that's just one example, uh, but I think a very interesting way to start investigating this relationship of, of how do we democratize well-being? Well, I, I think it starts with self-awareness and awareness of the others. Uh, and to notice these uh, connections between our well-being uh, um, and the health of people globally, you know. So, so my my actions right now uh, are having a huge influence on on somebody on some island very far away who is bearing the brunt of what we're seeing with climate change in terms of you know rising sea levels or um, wildfires, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love the stress of that importance on those who can almost almost afford, if I can use that word, afford a high level of self-awareness and consciousness on your choices and to have the choice. I think that's another thing. You know, I live here in uh, in, the, in central Vietnam and uh, live in sort of farmer communities. And sometimes that choice isn't available yet. What is available in terms of subsistence farming and just sort of small community living is in itself more sustainable. Right. Yet that's shifting. It's shifting is now the choices of buying. I mean, just to really bring it down to the microscopic level to shampoo hair, you have to go buy, you know, one uses sachets or uh, to feed your kids. You have to rely on sort of fast food and these types of things. And the choice is not really available anymore. So choices are shifting. And um, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to understand as your, cause you probably deal with a lot of leaders in this space? And do you have a barometer on their thinking around how they influence communities that have less choice, for instance, for the needle moving on our planetary health? I don't have good news on that front, unfortunately. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and again, this is just my lens, um, but also I think it's, you know, if you look at the news and if you look at how we're tracking, uh, on you know the Paris Agreement, uh, on our goals for you know keeping global warming to uh, you know 1.5 degrees centigrade, it's not looking good. So despite you know the, all the targets that were set at, at COP26 last year, if you if you look at the um, you know since then, since all the pledges and the commitments were made by governments and by business leaders globally, and you see so many of these net zero declarations and commitments, um, unfortunately, a lot of it is just sort of more greenwashing and very little action when it comes to actually reducing carbon emissions. And so, yeah, so I, I think there's a whole, but, but, but you know, on the, on the positive side, I think there's a huge number of youth and climate activists and NGOs and a small chunk of really progressive companies and businesses who have taken this on um, as part of their mission. So they are truly integrating, um, you know, um, they're, they're setting targets. And I mean, talk about really having really clear goals. They're setting those really clear goals. Uh, and they're following through on their actions and, you know, and they're making sure that they're, they're reducing emi emissions, not just what are called the scope one and scope two, which is sort of what, what are directly relevant to the business, but scope three, which is the emissions that are, you know, part of these, the supply chain uh, of whatever the company might be involved in. And usually those are the bulk of the emissions um, that a company or business is responsible for. And it's, you know, and it's, it's usually sort of swept, uh, swept under the rug and not taken care of. So, how is leadership doing? Um, not well. Uh, and I think we, 
uh, need to take a page from all of the brilliant youth who can sense that need for urgency. You know, this is the future that we are sort of uh, um, creating for them. And, and I think they feel that anxiety and, and that's why I think they are so motivated and, and they're taking a lot of good actions. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think we have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need you to link arms with more of the change makers out there, which also sounds like that's part of your mission. And, yes, um, you know, you're, you mentioned compassion. So do you tie in compassion to your activism? Like how does, how does that all work? Yes, it's, it's a huge part. So I think for me personally, compassion has been the saving grace for my well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very particular about my uh, physical health, you know, thanks to the work that I've done and what I know, I'm very interested in living a long, healthy life. So not just improving my lifespan, but my health span. And I'm really interested in all the conversations and science around longevity. So I, I do all of those things on a physical basis, but I think like, like everyone else, when I hit up against the limits of my stress and my overwhelm, and I've experienced burnout in my life uh, more than once, I uh, have, and, and not just that, but I think also some very difficult challenges in my personal life uh, with illness in my family that I've had to navigate for many, many years, it's my compassion practice that has saved the day for me. So that for me looks like a consistent meditation practice uh, every single morning as part of my morning routine and uh, strengthening my capacity for compassion, both self-compassion, so just being kind to myself on the days that uh, things don't go the way that I planned or when I screw up or you know when I don't show up as, as, as my best. Uh, but also compassion for others and recognizing this this shared common humanity and that we're all fallible and we, we all make mistakes. And, and I think that capacity for compassion uh, allows us to then build a little more trust and, and have the ability to collaborate with others in a more meaningful way. So um, mm. I think I was rambling a little bit there, but I, I, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you, you definitely answered it. And I almost want to turn up the dial on, you know, I can sense also that there is urgency in what you're talking about when it comes to compassion that I, I can tell it's not a nice to have, like, it's something that you absolutely need to, you know, embody and cultivate in your personal life. But can you tie that to the like the necessity of compassion uh, for leaders that are in this space of making change? Uh, towards our personal and planetary health? Like, why is it so important to embody it? It's not just like a nice to have once in a while thing um, or a retreat that you go on and learn some tips here and there. Why is it so important? So when you look at the research behind the science of compassion and the effect that it has um, on the personal level, yes, it's going to help you um, stay well, it's going to boost your motivation. So the benefits of self-compassion are many, including boosting your personal motivation. You're more likely to stick to um, a, a health and well-being program, for example. It strengthens the quality uh, of your relationships. And then when we're compassionate to others, it actually stimulates our parasympathetic nervous system. So it's one of the best ways to decrease your stress in, uh, in any given moment to deal with that overwhelm and burnout. So it's one of the best ways to increase your resilience. And then, but on an organizational scale, the, the benefits of compassion are many as well. So when we look at organizations who um, build cultures where 
where teams are encouraged to engage in what's called companionate love, which are those micro moments of love where you take a second to uh, ask how the other person is doing or bring a cup of tea for them or just, you know, if they make a mistake, just saying it's okay, I, I have your back. Um, those are the cultures that have been shown to be the most innovative. Um, those are the ones that have the least turnover. Those are the ones that are where have, they have the highest levels of customer service, both internally and externally. Those are the ones that have that high level of psychological safety. You know, everybody talks about psychological safety. It's a huge buzzword. But when you look at the, uh, you know, how do you, how do you build those cultures of psychological safety? Uh, you know, they usually come down to two things. One is the ability to really actively listen to others. Um, and the second is to, to be more empathic and compassionate. So, so I think for leaders, um, you know, that's the draw is if, if you can show them that, yes, you know, if you want to reach your targets for the next quarter, if you want to retain your best talent, if you want to be build innovative teams uh, and have the kinds of culture that people are talking about for your reputation, then compassion is probably a very good strategy. Mm, thanks for thanks for describing that on the individual and also team level. Very, very important. Um, it's also why we highlight, of course, the psychological basics that need to be in place before you can harness flow on any level. So I, I'd love to kind of shine some light on that. Like, how do you how do you harness your flow? How do you get into those intense moments in life where you, you get a lot done and sparks of insight come to you? So, Mina, you know, it's very interesting. You know, I, I was reflecting on, you know, when when was the the, the first kind of very vivid moment of flow for me? It, it's a it's a very um, precise moment. It was many years ago. I went skydiving for the first time, and it was a tent and jump, of course. And I had always wanted to go skydiving, but this particular place that I chose, it was a random Google search, and I ended up just outside of Barcelona at, at, uh, on the Empuria Brava coastline. Uh, and it, I had no idea, but I found out later that it's the largest drop zone in Europe. And all the instructors there were these world champion skydivers. So, and I had no knowledge of this before I went there. And this so I first, go there. This was your first ever dive? My first dive. And really random, right? And really random, you know, it was a, a beautiful, you know, the universe kind of came together for me and said, you know, we're going to give you this gorgeous experience. So, so there I go and talk about the preconditions for flow, right? Like I was curious about it. I was passionate about it, but there was this, it was a completely novel environment. I'd never been to Spain before. You know, there was a lot of, obviously it was a very high risk. Uh, you know, I had to sign a waiver that I could die and um, it was really unpredictable. Um, so I go in there. And, um, you know, I get introduced to the instructor and then, you know, we, we go through the motions. And so I could feel, you know, my heart pounding. And then we go up there on the plane, 12,000 feet. And then that moment when we jumped, it was, um, I always, even back then, I remember after the dive, I described it, you know, the free fall was about 55 seconds. And then it was about 10 minutes of just, you know, after the shoot open and we were just kind of flying around till we um, landed. So I describe those 55 seconds as the longest and the shortest 55 seconds of my life. And then the neurochemical cocktail that I experienced for almost four weeks afterwards was again, something that I ha hadn't experienced and actually haven't experienced since. I think I was so calm. I was so content. 
I think I just had like this huge dose of serotonin, which, you know, after the initial dopamine and endorphins, and it all seemed well with the world. And I felt I could do anything. And it was, you know, a very creative and very productive moment of my life. Anyway, so that was, that was, you know, looking back, I was like, wow, that was a really good, intense uh, experience of flow. And of course, you know, I've, I've done more diving since then, but I, I, I distinctly remember that, that first um, experience. So in my daily life, I actually honestly don't pursue flow. I don't start off the day saying, you know, today I'm going to be in flow. Uh, I never have. I've, I've always found that flow has, is more of an emergent state that is more likely to happen if I stick to my fundamentals. So again, I, I, I always come to uh, flow and peak performance through the lens of health and well-being. So I know that if I do my morning routines, of waking up at a particular early in the morning, if I do my breath and meditation practice, if I do a little, I usually do a little bit of light movement, like a few yoga poses in the morning, just to get that early movement going. And then that really sets me up for doing my most creative work. So I, I always block off my, my mornings and my dedicated time for doing my most challenging creative work. And then later on in the day, you know, I can do some of the more mundane activities. I usually do a workout, whether it's indoor rowing or you know, any other form of exercise, usually in the middle of the day, that's when, you know, for me, physiologically, that's my best time to work out. And then uh, in the evening is when I set time for meetings or for learning or reading new things. And then I make sure that my, you know, my sleep is optimized. I'm very, very particular about getting high quality seven to eight hours of sleep. As you know, to get good sleep, you know, it depends, sleep is not just a matter of what you do right before going to bed, but it depends on your whole day. And so when I really try to work with my circadian rhythms and uh, optimize those, um, you know, I pay attention to the food that I eat. I really nourish my body well I'm on a pescatarian diet for the most part. And uh, I do uh, intermittent fasting while, you know, time restricted eating during the day. Um, and then, yes, I, I definitely make sure that I, uh, you know, uh, I'm practicing gratitude and compassion, which is part of my meditation practice. So I think so. So all of these things, I think, really help me to experience more and more moments of flow. But I, but I don't, you know, I think just like happiness, uh, it's less about the pursuit and it's more about creating the conditions around it for those states to arise. Pardon the interruption. And thanks for tuning in to Flow Research Collective Radio. If you're listening to this, here's a bold bet I'm willing to make about you. My guess is, even though you're a high performer, you're still only performing at about half of your capacity, maybe even 10%. Now, even if I'm wrong, assuming that you're performing at less than your full potential opens up the possibility for you to improve. And that's good news. When you've already outperformed most of your peers by a long shot, you've got a skill stack that people envy, that's why you earn what you earn, and yet you're just warming up. You know those days when you knock out more in your morning than most do in an entire day? Well, what if you could perform at that level every day, reliably? consistently what would that unlock for you now here at the flow research collective we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best after training thousands of high performers from navy seals to fortune 100 executives here's what we found your evolutionary hardwired to perform at your best all it takes is pressing the right mental buttons and pulling the right biological levers so to speak it's about getting your neurobiology to work for you instead of against you now, if you want to make operating at a 10 out of 10 level as natural as breathing, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how to reliably trigger a flow state where you feel limitless and you do your very best work. 
This won't require any biohacking or nootropics or gadgets or caffeine guzzling. This higher gear is endogenous, which means it's a state that your brain produces on its own. No external stimulus is required. Just go to getmoreflow.com to learn how to get your biology working for you instead of against you so you can make peak performance second nature. All the best. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that, that you do not pursue flow, that you actually pursue these foundations on a day-to-day -day basis. And when those go off, you know that your propensity towards flow is going to wane a little. Um, but I, I do want to rewind back to that incredible experience that you had, this 55 seconds of the longest <laughs> and the shortest period of your life. And you said four weeks after that, you experienced this incredible neurochemical cocktail or state of flow. So that begs the question, what did you do? during that time? Like what came out of that, that span or any other span where you found yourself in these high flow states? How do they shape you or how, how did they shift things? Yeah. So, um, so actually that it, it wasn't the calm didn't come after four weeks, but for four weeks, it lasted mm -hmm. for four weeks, which was pretty amazing. But I think, you know, in general, I think what many different, um, periods of flow or instances of flow in my life have allowed me to do, I think, would be to pursue reinvention, you know, my reinvention in many different ways, uh, but also move closer and closer to doing the work that is most meaningful for me. Um, so that would not have been possible if I had not optimized uh, for flow if you wish but but again for me it's about just optimizing my my health so you know so so what the what does that look like well it's allowed me to do many things it's allowed me to take have the courage and take the risk to move from india to north america on my own without any help and support uh it's allowed me to uh change my career from being a from clinical practice as a physician to the business of health and well-being to now really focusing on my what really brings me joy which is education and speaking and communications and really doing that in that and then again sort of slowly moving you know combining health and leadership and climate and sustainability you know it's allowed me to stand on huge stages and uh, and there I very distinctly kind of I can see myself moving through the flow cycle pretty distinctly because I mean uh, for most most days you know like I take a flight and then I'm I, I reach a different time zone and then I'm always you know cursing myself why do I get myself into these situations uh, and you know I have all the butterflies and you know all the struggle that comes with making sure that I know what I'm going to say the next day. Uh, and then you, most most times, not always, but most times then I, I do, you know, through my breathing or meditation practice, just try to give myself that moment of release and say, okay, you know, I've, I've done my best in preparation and now let's just, you know, leave, leave the rest to uh, to my preparation. And then, and then you know, you, I, I love those moments when I'm on stage in front of lots of people and it just flows like, you know, you, you, I lose track of myself, which is a good thing. Uh, and, and my, um, I mean, my sense of self, and, you know, who I am and my identity and so on, and just sort of try to embody the, the message or the content that I'm, or the, you know, what I'm trying to uh, convey to the audience. And it's a beautiful feeling when I'm, I'm able to make that connection and, and articulate my ideas in a meaningful way. 
uh, and then of course come back down and then go into recovery of some sort. So yeah, just uh, yeah, I, I hope those are, those highlights some of some of the things that flow has allowed me to do. Yeah, I've I've actually I wonder what you think about this. I've spoken to other people who can really find flow on stage, who who, who experience lots of flow, and as you said, you know, it's a it's a selfless experience. It's an egoless experience, and that it starts to become this two way street where you can kind of almost feel or sense the audience and and how they're riding with you in in that delivery. Um, so, what have you sensed? Like temperature check on what your audience is interested in around your topics like where is really the the passion or the or the need uh or the gap that they want to step into on terms of a topic again it's you know again I, it depends on the audience because obviously a lot of the conferences you know self-select for a particular theme uh, but uh, a couple of areas that i'm noticing a lot of interest is definitely around this connection between health and climate you know that's what i talk about a lot of the times uh, and you know to, to your point i remember um you know a conference that i was at recently which was a intimate gathering and and there was this one person that i uh, in in the crowd and I distinctly remember you know I was speaking and I could see this person just like kind of sit up in their seat and and with a big smile on their face and you know they were kind of moving to the rhythm of what I was saying and I found myself kind of engaging with that person and making eye contact and so it was it was that beautiful moment of like you know just kind of forgetting where you are but like really having that kind of energy exchange which is so precious um, in those settings so I think um health and climate, I think the reason why people are interested in the connections between health and climate is because we are also noticing, and this is the other area of interest in audiences, is around burnout and stress. I think everyone has just, especially post-COVID, has experienced so much of that, that I think people are really hungry for solutions. And because I'm able to bring that into the conversation as well, I think people really sit up and, and take notice. But definitely, I would say, you know, I think everyone is just tired and exhausted after the past couple of years. Uh, I think the level of awareness around climate and sustainability is rising, which is great. Uh, and I think people are also looking for really craving that sense of meaning and ful fulfillment in the work that they do. Um, so I think that I think we're at a very juicy time, actually. I think we're at, at a good moment and, you know, at an inflection point in our history. But I think if we play our cards right, if we work together, if we collaborate in the right ways, I think we do have an opportunity to really tip the scales, uh, you know, towards the kind of world that we want to live in. Mm, yes, very, very hopeful. And I, I want to tap your wisdom even, even further there because you sit at that intersection and you're with a lot of these audiences and you're constantly getting feedback. But what, what's, what are we missing in this kind of game of peak performance and well-being? What are, what are most of us missing? And what would you, you know, what would you give me or any of our audience as kind of like that, that letter, that letter of wisdom of pay attention to this. This is what really matters. I would, probably point to a couple of things. Uh, one is peak performance and definitely health and well-being is not a hack. And so we need to just get away from that kind of mentality and instead get curious about what I mentioned in the beginning, which is get curious about the wisdom of our bodies and the awe-inspiring intelligence. I, I always get chills when I think about, and I'm, I'm, I'm a science geek, so I when I think about 
the hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening seamlessly in all the cells of our bodies right now, even as we're having this conversation, that are making this conversation possible, what could be more beautiful? And so once you start to understand your physiology and the beauty of it, then how can you not take care of your physiology? How can you not tend to it in, in a different way? Um, so I think that, you know, get curious about your biology, try to understand the systems. And it's a beautiful, complex system that actually also helps you to understand the extended system ecosystem that we're part of, right? So we are part of nature, we're not separate from it. So I think just bringing that kind of lens into peak performance and well-being is, is, is a good way to go. And, and when you do that, you start to notice that just like nature has its rhythms, our body has its rhythms. And so if I can consistently show up, you know, that's why those routines and sort of the, the, the need to put in that effort and energy into the routines is a requirement. There's just no getting away from it. Um, so there's, there are no shortcuts but the results, the ROI on that investment is huge. It's massive, it's, it's uh, transformative. And I think the other thing that I would uh, probably say is, you know, during flow, you know, one of the characteristic, characteristics of flow is that, you know, you lose that um, sense of yourself, right? That self kind of self transcendence. I would encourage folks to say, outside of my moments of flow, how can I be more deliberate about moving away from self-focus? So how can I, again, coming back to that whole notion of compassion is how can I start to widen my perspective of what I want to do with um, the amount of energy that I have, this peak performance energy or this flow state that I'm creating? How can I widen my perspective on the goals that I want to reach so that it's it's not just feeding the my personal goals, but how can I apply it through more of a, a service mindset and a concern for others? Um, yeah, I think that's probably the two things I would say. That was a beautiful uh, parachute landing, so to speak, on on all the <laughs> things that you've shared with us today. Is there is there something that I have not asked you that you would love to share with our community? I would just reiterate. Uh, that, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that no matter what industry we're in or the kind of jobs that we're doing, that we become aware of and educate ourselves on what's happening to our planet. So the climate, sustainability, uh, what's happening to our biodiversity, um, and the, you know, get curious about it read about it, get curious about, you know, you can start with the food on your plate, but then start to look at all different aspects of your lifestyle and the influence that that, that, that is having uh, on, um, on the health of the planet and on the health of people everywhere. And I think when, when we do that, I think the second thing that I wanna point out is you will come up with a lot of difficult emotions. This is not an easy process. When you look at the data, it's easy to get overwhelmed. Uh, when you look and interact with people who are bearing the brunt of you know, our actions, you know, the, the fortunate few who get to live in the, um, you know, the Western world and, and have the kinds of luxurious lives that we have, 
you will come up against sadness and grief and anger and disappointment and frustration. And so I think a very important skill for all of us to learn is to be able to lean into those moments of discomfort and be okay with that um, and, and figure out, you know, there are many different strategies and you can figure out how do I want uh, to show up in this moment of discomfort and do I want to just push it away and go back to whatever my escape route might be or can I just hang in there and, and really listen to the insight that this difficult emotion is giving me because of course it's, you know, all of our emotions are equally important. So yeah, and, and again, for me, I think leaning into that discomfort is, is the starting point um, and um, the, the, the most beautiful platform for our compassion to, um, to strengthen. Mm, absolutely. That sounds like a very worthy, graceful struggle to quote unquote pursue. Thank you so much, Parneet. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Amina. Hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably have a long track record of success. However, you also have a craving you can't ignore. It's the deep desire to do more and to take things to an even higher level than before. And when it comes to your performance, you're by no means inconsistent. However, you may have hit a plateau. The traditional ways of breaking through and gaining new ground just aren't working. If you're starting to wonder if you actually have it in you to get to where you want to go, maybe you can feel it. You're in the middle of an important stretch for your career. And the good news is there's a way to get at least 50% more out of what you're currently doing. You can gain the altitude needed to escape reactivity, to stay in the strategic zone and transcend stagnation all without compromising what's truly important to you. That's precisely what we're here to help you do at the Flow Research Collective. We've done it for thousands of top tier performers. Reviews and praise for our tools, our protocols and our ideas have come in from the likes of Elon Musk, Ariana Huffington and Bill Clinton. So if you'd like to train with us, go to getmoreflow.com. What you'll learn is backed by research from Harvard, DARPA, and Deloitte. These are the same peak performance protocols we teach to Navy SEALs and executives in Google and Facebook's boardrooms. Just go to getmoreflow.com. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.